In this second lecture of week two, let's focus for a few minutes on the philosophical underpinnings of integrated counseling. Your reading for the past several days should have given you a good survey of the worldview and philosophy regarding the practice of psychology from a Christian point of view. In this lecture, we're going to take some time to unpack some of that dense material. We'll start with epistemology and its impact on how we approach counseling. Then we'll focus on metaphysics and cosmology, which is our understanding of our nature of the world. And finally, we'll spend some time focusing upon anthropology, which is the understanding of human nature that we bring to the counseling practice. Okay, let's start with epistemology. Here you can see the four important ways of knowing. Detailed logic, rational discourse, empirical methods, and revelation. These are simply ways of talking about how human beings interact with knowledge. Logic is an internal process with internal dialogue. Rational discourse refers to the ways we interact with other people and with data, the ways that we reason about things and turn them over in our minds. Empirical methods look at our ability to investigate facts through observation and analysis. Revelation which also could be called special revelation, is how we interpret God's word, his written revelation to us. These are all important ways of knowing. Now, part of the worldview presupposition that we bring to counseling is the way in which we give authority to these various ways of knowing. For a Christian, the most authoritative way to know is by God's word, his revelation. Now, depending upon the particulars of your worldview, you grant authority to these other ways of knowing by giving them differing degrees of importance. Now, going a little further with this whole idea of epistemology, how do we know what we know? For example, a client comes to you for counseling and begins their comments by saying, I believe God is telling me. Now, that statement means something important but it can be interpreted in at least four different ways. First, a naive realist would see the statement, God told me, as being literally what the person has said. In other words, it would be the same as hearing a recording of God's voice. If this client said that God told them something, then God must have told them something. On the other hand, an anti-realist would immediately assume that the client must be hearing things because God does not speak in a physical voice. And if there is a God that speaks at all, he certainly doesn't speak in a physical voice, so this person must be delusional. The critical realist would want to carefully explore this claim with the client with openness and be open to the fact that God can do whatever God chooses to do. The critical realist believes that throughout the Bible, God did speak to his people. And also, throughout the centuries since the writing of the Bible, many faithful people have claimed to hear from God. So there would be an exploration that is open to the possibility of this being true. Finally, the faithful realist would be a person grounded in natural law, a counselor that understands that there is a natural law which normally does not include hearing God's physical voice but also believes in God's sovereignty 
and power and his ability to reveal himself in whatever way he chooses. It is a question of reality. What is real? What is imagination? Those kinds of questions are always involved. Since no one can know everything, and no one knows anything perfectly, we also have to consider some of the limiting factors in epistemology. One of these is flawed thinking. Another is when a person is being emotionally overloaded. Another refers to our cultural biases, because all of us can have this at some point in our lives. We also have to take into account our own presuppositions, which can make us open only to some truths and knowledge while rejecting others. And we can never forget the presence of sin in our lives, personally and in the world. This also means that we must factor in self-deception, because all of us are self-deceived at some level. Finally, we can't forget drugs and disease as a limiting factor. So as you can see, the simple fact is that no one knows everything perfectly. So all of this leads us to asking, how can anyone know anything? From the tradition of the Hellenistic training that we received in our education, you see a great focus on intellectual virtues. One of these virtues is honesty. It is very important for us to be an honest person and to be able to honestly sort facts from fiction, facts from interpretation. It is also important to be self-aware, to really know where we might be self-deceived and to have a sense of what our gifts are and where our flaws might be. An extremely important virtue is diligence, which is the need to be persistent in seeking the truth and then to remain open to new truth. A few others is being teachable and having respectfulness, that is, listening to others. In a later lecture, we will talk a great deal about this and about the ways in which the counselor is not only teaching and guiding the client, but that the client is teaching and guiding the counselor so that we can learn from every person with whom we interact. Next, responsibility refers to fully embracing our moral duty to use our knowledge to honor God. Then we must also practice a realistic humility where we can admit our limits without shame or embarrassment. Paul speaks about these intellectual virtues in his letter to the church at Philippi, writing in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. The key point being made here for us is that integrated counseling is driven by the devotion to intellectual virtue, both for the sake of the client and for the sake of our effectiveness as counselors. Metaphysics and cosmology is our understanding of the world. Let's return to the claim of our hypothetical client, who not only says that God told me, but now they claim that they've experienced a miracle. How does a counselor respond responsibly to such a claim? Those coming from a naturalistic point of view, which limits their view to a created order and to what can be observed, 
would see this claim as really a statement of coincidence. What the Klein experienced was a natural event that has a natural explanation, but that they are trying to interpret as an act of God. This really has to do with a philosophy best described by Andrew Little when he says, the cornerstone of modern cosmology is the belief that the place in which we occupy the universe is in no way special. This is known as the cosmological principle and it is an idea which is both powerful and simple. It is intriguing then that for the bulk of history it was believed that we occupy a very special location, usually the center and the scheme of all things. So, simply put, a naturalist cannot believe that miracles actually happen. A materialist is even more dismissive. A materialist would believe that the person making such a claim is ignorant and is engaging in superstition and magical thinking. The materialist would say that which is normal in life is science because what can be observed and measured in the natural environment would represent the limits of what we can know. For a supernaturalist, when they hear a claim such as this from their client, they assume that an act of God can and does happen, that God is sovereign, and that nature will certainly accommodate whatever God desires to do. They would also be able to say that we speak of acts of God day in and day out. For example, if a hurricane or tornado destroys a house, insurance is filed asking for compensation due to an act of God. So why is a miracle out of the question? The supernaturalist would make the distinction that science is important in describing nature, but not as a normative principle, meaning God sets the standard and science only describes the way nature is. Finally, a person coming from an integrative viewpoint would be respectful of the client and their claim and would want to explore in a very careful way what actually happened. They would be aware that the client, as well as the counselor, is making an interpretation of the facts as they are presented, but also would be open to God's free working in the world. Let's turn our focus now to the philosophical presuppositions of human nature, which is called anthropology. Jay Adams, in dismissing any other viewpoint other than the biblical one, has said, psychology is just sinful human beings sinfully thinking about sinful human beings. Now, how do we respond to such a statement? Our response, in many ways, is going to reveal what we think about human life, about human nature, about the ways in which humans change, and about the potential for change in people. Our response will also indicate our worldview. Perhaps the chart on the next slide will help you in thinking about your response to this question. For psychologists, theologians, and those who engage in spiritual formation, there are distinctions in the approach that each would bring to the subject of anthropology. The chart here tries to outline some of those assumptions. Look at the column labeled Assumptions and Exemplars for a moment. Notice from a psychological standpoint 
that the assumption is that people are biopsychosocial beings, meaning we are biological organisms with minds and personalities who are socially embedded but limited to an observable and naturalistic point of view. A theologian would describe sources of information and the nature of people as being the way that God describes people. For instance, we know what a human being is because of what God's Word says about us. God's Word describes people as being created in the image of God and that our sources of data for understanding human nature are supernatural sources, God's revelation throughout the Bible. From a spiritual point of view, we think of human beings in terms of God's creative spirit and living word, which is not only the Bible given to us more than 2,000 years ago, but the word of God living and working in us today. Next, when we think of the methods for understanding human nature, psychology is going to rely on empiricism, which is scientific and naturalistic inquiry while theology is going to use hermeneutics and theological reasoning, the standards of interpretation of Scripture. Spirituality focuses on prayer, practices of spiritual formation, and the faith community as a way of understanding human problems and human nature. Another area is our standards of thinking. Since it is very important to have some way of standardizing our thinking about problems, Psychology relies on theories, on psychological constructs. Theology relies on the systematic theology that has been developed over many centuries. Spirituality relies upon a formation of tradition and upon careful examination of biblical patterns for life. And the last area is the ideals and goals for counseling practice. How do we think about those we see in counseling and what are appropriate goals and ideals for what we do with them? In psychology, we think in terms of therapeutic effectiveness and how we seek to understand people and more importantly, helping them to understand themselves and understand their own problems and to work towards their own solutions. In theology, we think in terms of salvation in terms of the process of sanctification throughout life and the power of faith in people's lives. In spirituality, we speak of unity and love and of helping people to love God with all their hearts and minds and soul and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. We think in terms of abiding in Christ. Now this concludes the second lecture of week two. I pray the Lord's blessing upon you as you continue your studies in the integration of psychology, theology, and spirituality.